Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. If you're in a relationship with someone, anyone, friend, family member, or coworker, and certainly if you're in a relationship with a romantic partner, you will have disagreements. It's inevitable. It's part of the human condition, and it's part of being in relationship with someone else. But what if those disagreements become heated, become arguments, become so conflictual that you lose sense of what the relationship is all about because the arguments themselves become addictive? That's what we're talking about today. The possibility that sometimes in relationships, those arguments can become so intense and so integral to the relationship of the couple that they actually become addictive. What do you think? Well, stay tuned. We're going to get into it right now. I've invited Dr. Philip Lee, the author of Argument Addiction, Identify the True Cause of Arguments and Fix It for Good. Dr. Philip Lee is the co-head of marital therapy at Wild Cornell Medical Center in New York City. He's been with them for 35 years. An empathic and straight-talking therapist, he has helped hundreds of people feel happier, have stronger relationships, and perform at their best at work and play. Lee also specializes in helping patients with anxiety and depression, as well as performance issues at work, in sports, and the arts. Lee holds a private practice in the Upper East Side of Manhattan and in Greenwich, Connecticut. He is a graduate of Harvard College Cum Laude and Yale Medical School. He did his internship and residency at Cornell, New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Lee, welcome to the program. Karen, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, absolutely. This is the kind of topic that I think is so important and one that therapists, of course, struggle with. I'm not, I mean, I took my marital therapy course in grad school, but... That makes you as much of a marital therapist as any of the others. Oh my gosh, I was just going to say, no, I'm definitely not an expert. So when I have folks reach out to me with questions, I'm always trying to go back to what I know, but to get some fresh perspective on the discourse, I think is so helpful. And your book really, to my mind, it was a very different vantage point. Uh, you, you basically are making this the premise that arguments in marriage are as addictive as any kind of addiction that we're very familiar with. Drugs, alcohol, all the like, even cutting you referred to. And I think that's a really interesting premise. So elaborate a little bit on that. All of the addictions are employed in order to make life more palatable. And they do make life more palatable in the short run, but in the long run, they have a a downhill course. Arguing is the same way. Um, Our book, Argument Addiction, shows how marriages 
Well, as we say, if all marriages could be lived backwards, they would all have a happy ending because they all start out more or less happy. But then things go downhill. And as the people start to feel bad and feel criticized and feel underappreciated, they strike back by starting arguments or pointing out failings in their spouse. It's you, not me, that's the problem. And there's an escalation of that. It gets to be more and more, or it gets to be more and more bitter, or perhaps one partner retreats and sulks and the other complains. But in any case, it is a downhill course. It becomes more and more habitual. It's a way of dealing with loneliness and sadness, and it's a very ineffective way, just as drug abuse, alcohol, cutting, bulimia. They're all ineffective ways of dealing with anxiety. But there's that temporary relief. And as you pointed out, it's preferable to feeling the anxiety. In that moment, it's preferable to fight. And even with the anger is surging and and the insults are flying, it feels better than to feel rejected, frustrated, and anxious. So I'd rather completely undermine the stability of my marriage in this moment by lashing out than to take a beat and really deal with what's going on underneath the surface in my internal experience. Karen, you you put it perfectly. That, That is exactly right. The only thing I would say is People don't feel like in the short run they're doing something bad, just as uh, drug abusers and alcoholics. They don't say, well, this will be really bad for me, but um, you know, I've got to do it. They say, oh, I'll do this and I'll feel better. And the arguers are the same way. They're, they're going to point out for the millionth time that their partner is doing this wrong or that wrong, their partner is late, their partner didn't take out the garbage, their partner doesn't know how to stack the dishwasher, (laughs) their partner took the wrong turn, whatever it is. It's just that they're thinking, you know, this popular saying, um, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect different results. Right. They, they somehow expect that when they point out some failing of their partner that they've pointed out numerous times, that their partner is going to say, oh, my gosh, you're right. I, I am late. I've really got to do something about that. Uh, no, the way I stack the dishwasher is not as good as the way you stack it. But it doesn't work that way. The partner strikes back and things have a downhill escalation. And the sad piece that you also point out is that the subtext of most arguments gets to the point where it's, you're no good. And what strikes me about that is how do we go from, I do, you're the love of my life to you're no good. <laughs> like in every instance, every argument at the, at the root is you're no good. That's a very drastic turn. <laughs> well, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, in, in our book, Argument Addiction, which we say makes bad marriages good and good marriages great. And that is true, I think. Uh, These marriages start out, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They're infatuated. And the infatuation chemicals are like like crack in the crack den. Uh, Everything's great. She's great. He's wonderful. She's so fantastic. He's so, you know, just what I always wanted. The sex is wonderful. Then calendar pages flip, people go out, they get married. At some point, 
those uh, endorphins, those, those crack chemicals, the infatuation chemicals fade. And when they fade, it's a little bit like waking up in the crack den. And, uh, oh, those people who were so wonderful, my gosh, they have rotting teeth and they're awful. <laughs> and I've been lying around and all this, what? Well, it's right. not as extreme as that. But they each feel less happy than they did before. And this is like the big mistake that people make. They attribute it to their partner. And then these things that are bothering them, like she's always late, you know, he's, he's so difficult. They think if only that would go away, I could feel like I did before. But the thing is, you're never going to feel like you did before, but you can progress to something better better than the drug-fueled infatuation and far better than the downhill course of argument. Yeah, and it seems that so many people are looking for, and I just think it's natural, we're looking outside of ourselves. And so when that first disappointment happens in marriage, like you said, they're pointing the finger, it's your fault, you're apparently no good. I thought you were good, but you're not. <laughs> and, and it's your fault that I'm not feeling that high that maybe that infatuation is pretty unrealistic to expect we're going to feel for the course of a lifetime with a partner <laughs> anyway. And so we, we point the finger. And I deal with a lot of folks who are on the other side of things because my book is for single women to encourage and empower them to stay strong and not settle. So it really relates because my fear, I'm always trying to encourage women in my own experience because I didn't get married until 42. Uh -huh. but, but all those years of being single only helped me strengthen my independence such that I don't do what I think some couples do struggle with. And it's only because I couldn't do it for so long because I was on my own. I don't look to my husband like, hey, what are you doing today to make me happy? <laughs> or, <laughs> or when I'm not happy, I don't look to him like, what'd you do? You must have screwed up somehow because I'm not feeling those feelings. That was just a lot of learning that happened in my own individual journey. So I'm always uh, worried, I guess, that when people do get together and they haven't had that time to really strengthen their independent understanding of the fact that no one and nothing in this life makes me happy, I must do that on my own. And then the partnership can be two independent people feeling very fulfilled on their own, walking hand in hand instead of pointing those fingers at each other. Your, your book is excellent on that subject, by the way. And oh, I, think, I think this is a good companion piece to it. You know, you are absolutely right. Uh, the idea that someone else is going to make you happy is a, a fairy tale yeah. at best. Certainly, a, as they say, pipe dream. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to happen. And those infatuation chemicals, um, it's not a question of if they should fade. They always fade. They always go away. And the question is, what are you left with? We like the metaphor, for some reason, of the, the charcoal fire and the Weber grill. You pour on some kerosene or fire starter or whatever it is, and there's a big whoosh, flames. That's the infatuation. The infatuation always dies out. And the question is, are you left with some coals that are getting slowly hotter and turning gray, which would be like a happy life? Or does the fire just go out? Does yeah. the drizzle of disappointment put the fire out? And then perhaps you go look for someone else to, to be the fire starter and have the whoosh. One of the shortcuts that we talk about is affairs and what happens in those. 
And those are a shortcut to, I'll just get me some more of these infatuation chemicals and then everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I get this question more from folks who are dating currently, but I think it also, you speak to it in the book as well. When do we decide, okay, I want to change. I want to make some adjustments. I know that we're caught up in some really painful patterns. Or when do we say, I want to change, but too much damage has been done. I can't do the changing in this relationship, whether it's a marriage or dating. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, that, that's... That's not only a good question, that, that is probably the single most common question that we are, that we are asked when couples come to see us. Um, I say us because the book was written by my wife, Diane Rudolph, and by me. We're the co-heads of marital therapy at Cornell. When we see people individually, her or me, but what people often say is, um, I, I don't really know if I want to be with him or I don't really know if I want to be with her. Can, uh, can this marriage be saved? Is it worth saving? Or they say, I'm really sick of him. I'm sick of her. How people feel is not a very good gauge of how things are. Once people aren't getting along, once they're starting to argue, the affection that initially bound them is gone for the moment, what you know, what we usually say, um, what I've heard other people say, uh, we say we're going to make you the best couple we can, and then you can decide. And the truth is that once you make the arguments evaporate and disappear, which is what our book does, then allow the affection and appreciation that both partners have been so thirsty for to flourish. Things can and generally will return to, in some ways, a, a better situation in the sense that the infatuation field and situation is unstable and was never going to last anyway. Right. I mean, it's probably biological, right? We have to go back to homeostasis. I mean, our bodies can't probably manage all those, uh, the dopamine rushes and the endorphin rushes. I mean, it's probably something that we just can't physiologically do. Well, I, you know, I completely agree with you. I think it goes back to the caveman, you know, and the cavewoman. Uh, we all have chemicals that make us able to think, oh, this is the greatest person. And those people who were, had those chemicals had children. Sure. And the people who didn't have those chemicals didn't have children. And the whole Darwin story is whoever has the most children, that's what gets replicated. So now we all have those chemicals, but they can evaporate, which they will. I love the, the idea of we're, we're going to help you find within yourselves the ability to have the best connection possible, and then, then it's, it's your choice. Well, that, you know, that's, uh, I think that's really all you can do, and I think it's very fair to do that, and I think it's very helpful to people because the best connection people can have is generally more than good enough. You know, marital therapists, one of the common questions is, are you neutral? Are you in favor of the couple breaking up? Are you in favor of the couple staying together? I think the common answer is um, neutral, but I don't think it's really true. I, I think most people are in favor of trying to fix marriages, it being cheaper emotionally and financially to fix marriages <laughs> than to have them break up. That is a fact. What is the saying? It's <laughs> it's cheaper to keep her. I think I've heard it put that way. <laughs> I've heard it put that. 
<laughs> yeah. But you mentioned in the book too, which again, getting back to the comparing those arguments to an addiction, you say that oftentimes even a couple that's coming and they both claim to, and I'm sure they absolutely believe this to be true, that they want to work on their marriage. They are loath to give up those arguments because as you mentioned earlier, those arguments are giving them distance from that anxiety and that inner pain and frustration. And so like any addict, they're going to cling to those arguments. And so how do you work with that as a therapist to help them understand that it may feel uncomfortable initially to let go of those arguments, but there is so much to be gained if they can stop those patterns? That's a great question and one of the great challenges. I think to succeed in this, you do have to get people to give up the arguments. And in many ways, that's, that's an act of faith from people because they do not feel that, as you point out so rightly, Karen, they do not feel that they will be better off without the arguments. In fact, to some extent, not only do they act like you're asking them to give up something that's very valuable to them, these arguments, even though the arguments have done them demonstrably no good over the course of time, but many couples don't know what else to talk about. It's, uh, you know, if we, if we don't argue, what are we going to do? Just sit there? <laughs> and that would be boring. <laughs> right? But for many people, it, it, there's a middle ground. Uh, yeah, we get along most of the time, but when we have these arguments, it's really bad. And that's why we came because, you know, we had this really bad argument. And, you know, one of the, one of the typical things with couples is they might say to you, we had a terrible argument last Wednesday night. And you say, what was it about? And they're like, I don't remember. (laughs) Yeah. It's just become part of their dynamic. And just because we kind of touched on it, do you think that some people, by virtue of their personality type and the way they're wired, that really, without some arguing in their marriage, that it would be boring for them? Now, I'm not that person. I do not enjoy – I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) Yeah. But, you you know, you hear that about, you know, then they have this knockdown drag out and then this great makeup sex kind of thing. Yeah, the the makeup sex button – I don't think you want to keep pushing that. It, no. Uh, it works for a while. Sure. But, af- but after a while, it's like uh, these cell phone batteries. It uh, loses <laughs> yeah. its charge. For sure. And well, and it also strikes me that, as you said, that they, with any addict, also not wanting to let go of their substance of choice. I, I think there's a lot of fear, and you spoke to that in the book as well. You said, it's fearful that if I give up the the fighting and the anger, I'll be left raw and vulnerable. And because I've now lost trust in this person to take care of me emotionally when I'm vulnerable, it would be very scary for someone to say, I'm not going to fight because the fighting is protecting their self. Well, you, you, I mean, you're absolutely right, Karen. And and you you um, you end up in the uh, nuclear disarmament bind. I'm going to give up my atomic weapons. How do I know they're going to give up theirs? You know, right. um, you know, I'll give up my atomic weapons, and then I'll get blown to smithereens. So you know, I'm going to stop arguing, and then what? He's going to humiliate me? What? You know, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Most of our emotions, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, are really grounded in love or fear. Uh huh. Anger, I think oftentimes is, there's fear beneath it. Sadness, depression, fear beneath it. And so to try to move toward love, especially in marriage, which is supposed to be your most precious love relationship. Uh-huh. 
I love the way to frame that. If you can help people distill down to, it's a choice. Do I want to continue this relationship with this dynamic of fear that's at the root of everything? Or can we move together toward love? That, that's exactly the conundrum that people face. What, what happens is, is when people argue more and they get along less well, they start to, to look for the faults in their partner. And after a while, that's all they see. Uh, you know, people see what they're looking for. Oh, um, if, if you talk to women who are trying to get pregnant, uh, they'll tell you the streets are full of pregnant women. Mm-hmm. If you talk to um, people who um, you know, want some particular kind of car, that's all they see is that car, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you got your eye out for. But in terms of couples, if you send your your partner to the store to get uh, peanut butter and lemons and you're really happy with them and they're great and they come back with the lemons but not the peanut butter, you say, oh, that's okay, honey, we'll get it tomorrow. Thanks for getting the lemons. Uh, but most of these arguing couples are like, you forgot the peanut butter? Little Billy was looking forward to the peanut butter. What's the matter with you? Why are you so self-absorbed? People see the what the partner didn't do, and they don't see what the partner did do. And then the partner strikes back, starts seeing what you didn't do instead of what you did do. You know, it's a it's it's a downhill trip. And the truth is they really don't see the stuff that their partner's doing. People who get along, it's not because they're really polite. It's that they that's what they see. They see the stuff that their partner did do really big and close up and the stuff that the failings they see off in the distance and with the unhappily married, it's the other way around. Perspective is everything. And (laughs) I mean, right. I mean, and I just love, I love cognitive uh, therapy in general, Uh just big CBT all the way. And yeah. And it just strikes me that there's a couple other kind of mindset shifts that happen in what you're describing it's yeah it's looking for looking for and always and again it's probably not intentional at this point it's really they've they've put on a lens without realizing it to only look for the negative and to nitpick and and they've lost the sense of gosh we're supposed to be on the same team here and <laughs> right like we did sign up we got the jerseys and we're supposed to, <laughs> to be on the same team and also they've lost the ability to give each other the benefit of the doubt which is just so powerful for any relationship whether we're talking family friends coworkers and certainly in marriage and, and that's just sad i'm sure it's sad for you to to <laughs> interact with these folks sometimes when you see all these wonderful characteristics that they have clearly lost the ability to see in each other. That, you, you put it very, very well, and, and that, that's exactly right. Uh, they don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. Instead, they give each other the, the doubt of any benefit, you know, whatever <laughs> the other person does. They, they, <laughs> right. they find the negative, the, the missing thing. You did nine things, so what about the tenth? You know? mm-hmm. And what you say is very true. Couples who get along see it as a team sport like doubles tennis. They're, they're saying, um, hey, great shot, partner, you know, really good shot. And the other person is saying, no, no, you set it up really well. That was a tremendous overhead you hit. Yeah. And the couples who don't get along in doubles tennis are like, 
how could you serve so soft and let them hit right. it at that like that? What? Why'd you do right. that? Well, maybe if you learned how to volley, it wouldn't be a problem. Blah, 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 back and forth. And those right. are losing teams and they're losing yeah. teams in marriage as well. Yeah, for sure. And and you mentioned that in the book, you say, you know, even when you win, you lose. And that's so true because thinking we're going to win in quotes, an argument in marriage, no one ever wins. <laughs> You'd never win. And it, gosh, and you know, that feeling of vindication is going to be so fleeting. And then I think many people, and maybe they've moved past this, but at least initially, I know when I, my husband and I have gotten into spats, even if I get a zinger in, gosh, within three seconds, I'm like, oh, why did I say that? <laughs> I mean, really, that little moment of feeling like, gotcha, is just so painful later when I, <laughs> and I come back tail between my legs and I'm saying, why did I say that thing? And so I, I love those pithy statements because I think they're ones we can kind of tuck away and they can come to mind real readily when we catch ourselves almost, okay, I got this. No, how about I don't say that? Because if I win, I still lose and we still lose. Uh, you, you know, exactly right. Uh, sounds like you guys have a great marriage, by the way. No, uh, no business for us. It's very disappointing. <laughs> Honestly, I will say... Again, I think partly because we were obviously, I mean, we married in our 40s. So he had been married before, which I think is another interesting mm -hmm. uh, factor. And when we met, I I was single girl living in the city and he'd been married since he was 23. And I thought, oh my gosh, we've lived such different lives. But we found the common ground of me having heartbreak because all these relationships never seemed to work out and him mm -hmm. having that, that very profound heartbreak of a marriage not working out. And so both of us like, whoa, this is how it was supposed to always be. And I don't think it's a bad thing. And I'd be curious what you think about this. I don't think it's a bad thing to have something to compare it to where I don't take him for granted because I see how amazing it is to have that partner, that person who is on my team always. And I think he doesn't take me for granted because he knows, wow, I've been in a marriage that wasn't working and that wasn't happy. And wow, I definitely can't take this for granted because it is working and it is happy. I, I think it's uh, tremendously valuable. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I have an interest in this. I, I, think, I, I think our book provides the background and the understanding of the of agreement and disagreement and argument and love and affection that everybody needs but skipping over that it's not like people really teach you about this and it's not like there's an easy way to get it there's not an easy way to figure out who to be with and there's not an easy way to figure out how to be with them and you you know, mm -hmm. Nobody who's like a tennis champion feels bad about the balls they hit in the net. And there's no reason to feel bad about the people that you learned how relationships don't work with before you got to the one that does work. That's so well put. I love that. And I'm always trying to encourage the people I interact with as well that sometimes they feel, they do feel, oh gosh, I dated that guy for three and a half years and it, it failed. And I'm thinking, no, it didn't. It was just, you learned what you learned and that's absolutely going to be beneficial when you actually meet the person you're meant to be with. And you're going to learn what didn't work for you and what dynamics you do enjoy and what characteristics are exciting for you to partner with. So nothing's ever wasted if we can make sure we can take those learning principles away with us. No, nothing, nothing is wasted. And even if you come to the realization, uh, three and a half years, I, I could have figured that out in one and a half years. Even then you've learned something. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I was engaged uh, in my early 30s and I so I was with this guy for three and a half years and then we were we were engaged for a year and then at 34 two months before the wedding I finally admitted to myself things that uh-huh. I was not admitting and called it off and yeah initially gosh I felt like um, I'm 34. I'm not a baby. I'm a psychologist after all. <laughs> Maybe should have been a little more introspective. <laughs> but uh, so initially, yeah, I went through, I think, a normal period of feeling like a train wreck. And gosh, I messed up a lot of people's lives here, my fiancés and family members. and But people would say, gosh, that was courageous. And in the moment, I felt like, no, 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 I'm a train wreck. Don't you see? <laughs> Don't call me brave. <laughs> Don't call me courageous. But later, thankfully, I was able to see that choice and that decision as, yeah, a brave decision and also the most loving because it wouldn't have been loving to still go through with it. That's not loving to do to someone to go, okay, let's get married. And, you know, I'm realizing I'm kind of not all that into you, but I'm 34 and it's time to get married and the clock is ticking and all those sorts of things. So it really, it's a matter of allowing yourself to feel whatever emotions because breakups are hideous and they're so painful, but then try to sit with and maybe try to acknowledge and agree with some of the people who've tried to, to speak to you what they see. Then you can really walk away with that experience will definitely not be wasted and you will be stronger and savvier in your relationships moving forward. Oh, that's absolutely right. You did so much the uh, smart and brave and thoughtful thing. Your family just wants you to be happy, and you wouldn't have been. Um, You wouldn't have been happy with this guy. He wouldn't have been happy with you. Once you're not happy with him, he's not happy with you. It would have been a complete disaster. You stopped the um, bus from going over the side of the road into the ravine. Yeah, but then I'd been coming to you. You'd have had your business. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's always a silver line. (laughs) It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast, and I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page, and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May, tim at loveandlifemedia.com. So talk to us about the three rules you mention in the book. People who are used to arguing don't really have a way to figure out how to interact. And simple rules like Don't say or do anything that will make your partner feel bad. 
if you just did that, everything would work. Everything would work out fine. A different way of um, measuring it, as it, it it we point out, is think of yourself as a stock. And everything you do is either raising your stock or lowering your stock's value. And your partner is like a principal shareholder. You want your stock to be as high as it can. And an even simpler way of measuring is every time you interact with your partner, your partner is either going to be thinking, gee, I'm glad I married that woman, or, oh my God, how much longer can I take this? Or, gee, I'm glad I married that guy, or, I can't even stand this. You want it to be, I'm glad I married that guy. I'm glad I married that woman. Raise your stock. And, and, you know, we fourth rule, we say, look, you got to try to get what you want, which is true. You do have to try to get what you want, but try to get it in the setting of not making your partner feel bad. And you'll end up much, much happier. What's the saying? Uh, honey attracts more bees than uh, what? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know the saying. I'm messing it up. But I love that idea of I, I think communication is a lot bigger than communication is key, period. No, it's how you communicate. Can you say this very important thing that you need to say in ways that your partner can receive it and not immediately get defensive? And I, I'm not going to just spout off whatever's coming to mind. Let me think of a way to frame this in a way that I would like to receive it or in a way that I know that he can hear it and not feel that I'm on the attack. Oh, exactly. Um, well, I think it's like honey attracts more bees than vinegar or something. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And, and you're thinking, but why would I want to attract bees? I mean, what, well, right. That's a good point. <laughs> what's, the point what's the point of that? It sounds like vinegar would be the way to go. Right. right. The, I, I, think the, I think that couples that really get along, that thing I said about don't say or do anything that will make your partner feel bad, I think they actually don't want their partner to feel bad. So even if they have something to say, they think, I don't want my partner to feel bad. How can I say this so that, so that they don't feel bad? That mostly relies on a relationship eventually getting to the point where if you do something that's disappointing, you feel bad about it rather than you get defensive about it and try to think of a way out of it. So if um, if I forgot the dry cleaning or something, uh, I would feel bad that I forgot the dry cleaning. And so my wife would not say, Jesus, you forgot the dry cleaning again. Cause she knows I already feel bad about the dry cleaning. She's like, she would be like, uh, Oh, uh, we didn't get the dry cleaning. Well, that's okay. I don't, we don't really need it today anyway. Even if that weren't true, probably. Um, the, the reminder about the dry cleaning is in there. Uh, the attempt to have me not feel bad. And, um, and I'm thinking, I'm so glad I'm married to this person, not huh, how much longer can I take it? Right. Yeah. And it just is so sad to see that people, you, you, you imagine that they probably had that manner of interacting at one point. And then it just, based on all the things we've talked about, derails. So I have to ask, and you don't have to answer, but do you feel, <laughs> but uh, did you come about some of this from your own 
marital struggles at some point and then you iron things out and then realize we've got something to share here? Well, you know, like you, like, uh, like everybody, um, yeah, you, I mean, you, you go out with a variety of different people and you learn, you, mm-hmm. you learn from stuff that happens. The biggest debt, you know, is really to the couples who have come to see us over the years and we supervise all the residents on all of their couples cases. And the stories are always different. The arguments are a little bit different, but they have, they, they all have a commonality, um, of uh, that that we've described of starting out well, going downhill, people starting to pick out the failings of the partner. You didn't do this, you didn't do that, and that's why the saying, the answer to what do couples argue about? I think Gottman says anything, which yeah. is true um, yeah. because the arguments themselves. Uh, and a lot of marital therapies involve trying to figure out who's right in the arguments, but the. Who's right is the people who don't have arguments. <laughs> yeah, and you point out in the book several kind of common themes that tend to be argued about a lot, but then you're always getting back to the underlying tension and the underlying theme is always, the again, the you're no good and it's coming back to the the fear really. Yeah, and, and I do want to say, so for anyone who's listening, the book is very accessible, even though obviously you guys have over 50 years of experience in this and you're professors and it's obviously you have really incredible credentials, but the book, it's short chapter is very digestible. So I think it's one of those things, that, which I love personally. I'm a psych nerd, of course. I love the literature, but you know, <laughs> no one's, the, the average person's not trying to pour through some academic journal, right? So <laughs> I love when we can take research that's really important and then disseminate it in a way that people go, okay, you know, I can get through this short chapter and okay, that's, that's manageable. I can, I can digest this. So I really, I appreciated the form of the book as well. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Thank you so much. It was certainly our intention for it to be highly readable, highly accessible and highly entertaining, not, uh, not stuffy, not pedantic, not full of uh, stats and footnotes. Very, very readable and entertaining. And we think it does the job. I, yeah, I would agree for sure. What do you have to suggest, again, because many of my listeners will be in the dating realm. Do you have any specific things that they should be looking for when they are in the midst of that dating relationship? Are there things that they should be trying to sort through to make sure that they're making a strong choice in a partner? Um, Well, there are two pieces of advice that uh, I would give them. One, I would try to act the same way that I would act in five years, not artificially enhance uh, my attractiveness by uh, a, you know a guy who goes to the gym every day suddenly finding time to spend all the time with his uh, girlfriend and not going to the gym. But after they get married, he's going to be going to the gym, mm-hmm. and she's going to be like, uh, "What happened? You were here. This isn't who I married." And he's like, "Oh, um, no, well, no, I, I go to the gym, yeah." That's like a trivial example, but there's there's a world of examples from that. And the other thing I would say is it should be a lot of fun. I mean, it should be a should be a day at the beach. You know, you got all those endorphins. If you're still not having a good time, it's a pretty bad sign. 
Oh my gosh. Yes. I, and I encourage people who reach out to me with questions. I'm always reminding them, you know, dating is, is the honeymoon period. It's the A game. If you're really not happy with the dating relationship, please understand things are going to get more challenging as life goes on. <laughs> yeah. And this is endorphins wear off. It's things are going to get rougher. And I love the first point too. My husband calls that a bait and switch, right? Where oh, someone, yes, yes they, exactly. They present one way, but you know, once I get comfortable, then it's going to be a different way. And, you know, actually, I don't think that's a trivial example because people who are very committed to the gym, that's great. To the, on the one hand, that's great that you are taking care of your body and you're trying to be healthy. But uh, some people can be, that can be an addiction as well, where it completely takes over all their spare time. And I wouldn't want to be with someone like that because I have other things I want to do together. <laughs> so I, I think any of these examples are really important and ones that people can look for and go, okay, it's because, you know, a lot of marriage is just wanting the same things from life. We have the same values. We want to do similar things. You mentioned tennis. I love tennis and so does my husband. And so we play Uh mixed doubles. Yeah. And we go to tennis tournaments and a lot of it, it just makes it so much easier. Yeah. I I adore tennis. (laughs) I'm kind of obsessed. But, and I love the way, at least in my marital therapy class a million years ago, I talked about money in the bank. So those commonalities are just, you have the same values in that area. So it's just, you never have to think about it anymore. And you don't ever take withdrawal out of that domain because you just have that common ground. You know, getting along is fun. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, you know, it pays well. It's good. Uh, Once people get the hang of uh, getting along, they don't keep getting along because they're following some strict rules or something. They keep getting along because it's so much better. Mm-hmm. They feel so much better than they did before. And in terms of the tennis, by the way, so we have a, we have a, a we, we have a chapter on sports and, uh, and getting along. We find that people who are not having, it seems obvious, not having arguments with their husbands or wives do better at sports than people who are. Of course, in mixed doubles tennis, that's even more apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you mentioned before, it's whether you are encouraging each other, a la the Bryan brothers with a, you know, mm-hmm. a chest bump, mm-hmm. or whether you're you're going, you know, your your rotten serve set me up to get nailed by that <laughs> that return. And I'm exactly. at the net. I'm a sitting duck at the net. <laughs> yeah. When you when you that's the kind of stuff that when you hear it on the other side of the net, you know you're gonna win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, keep going, keep going at each other. <laughs> yeah. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. Dr. Lee, I want to thank you so much for your time. Do you have any parting thoughts that people can take with them as far as 
getting the gist of your book or maybe a teaser for what more they will learn if they pick up a copy? And Well, thank you. Yes, this book, which, as I said, makes uh, bad marriages good and good marriages better. You do not have to have a bad marriage to get this book available at Amazon and on Kindle. Argument Addiction. Whatever your marriage is, it will improve dramatically and quickly with this book. You'll, you'll come to understand a, a bunch of stuff that just seemed to be going on, but that seemed out of your control, but is in fact entirely within your control. It isn't that hard to make your marriage much, much better. Or your relationship doesn't have to be a marriage. And you even speak to affairs, which for some people, that would seem to be the one deal breaker from which we cannot return. We, we, we talk and we have very in a couple of entertaining chapters on uh, affairs, although it's not an entertaining subject if uh, you find yourself in a relationship with someone who's having one. But we, we talk a lot about the arguments that arise from affairs. We talk about how the affairs come to pass, what's going on. And then we talk about the arguments that come out of them and how to, how to weather them. And I think if uh, parties read this book, uh, come out stronger than uh, before, which people talk about, but doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Could happen, though. Yeah, and I have people that I've known who have gone through that, and they will say, if they're able to navigate those waters, that there's a level of honesty that they reach in their marriage that they never had before, which may have been one of the reasons the lack of communication or lack of depth of honesty may have been one of the factors that ended up baking into the affair cake. But mm-hmm. but that level of honesty is uh, it's a rough one. I'm, I'm, I personally don't want to have to have an affair or be <laughs> cheated on to get that level of honesty. I'm going to encourage my husband and I to read your book together so that we can get to that depth. But I, but I guess, again, it's, it's going back to what kind of vantage point do you want to take from a painful, traumatic situation? Are you going to then look at it as, okay, well, silver lining. Gosh, I wouldn't have tried to script this out to get to this silver lining in this way, but this level of honesty. So there, again, that can be a level of strength or that could completely sustain the the marriage in, in the years ahead. It, again, it's, I say that and I feel like I need to tell my husband, I'm going to call him right after this and be like, okay, just by the way, <laughs> when you listen to the podcast, <laughs> understand our honesty is good. We are very honest. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Well, thanks again, Dr. Lee. I really appreciate your time. And yes, the book is available on Amazon. Are you on any of the social media channels that folks should be aware of if they would like to follow you and that sort of thing? I, I, I started occasionally writing for um, Psychology Today. I'm there a little bit. That's a great resource too. So yeah, thanks again for your time and I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Give your husband my best. I will. (laughs) Okay, great. Congratulate him on good choice. Oh, thank you. Bye. The love and life hack for this week is, are you addicted to the arguments? If so, look deep within, as Dr. Lee talked about. What's going on beneath the surface of 
all these arguments, the dynamic at work, the patterns at play are soul crushing and relationship crushing. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I really appreciate all of you who've taken the time to rate the podcast and review it on iTunes. That helps others find the show. It means so much to me. I really appreciate it. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.